you sit, uh, we could find literally a, a Jewish temple, a large mosque, a Mormon seminary, a, a mainline church, a Hindu temple. How do you know? It's commonly believed that there are many paths to heaven. So in all of those places that you could walk to from here, where some of which people are gathered right now, all of those paths are essentially leading the same place, we're told. This fits very nicely with what we talked about last week, if you were with us, that all truth is, is relative, especially spiritual truth, that really there's nothing more than personal preference. As long as you sincerely pick a path that's right for you and follow it with your whole heart, it will lead you to ultimately the same destination. If you have your truth and I have mine and we're both right and we're both sincere, then that's really all that God asks for us. It's only personal preference. If you've read much on this topic, then no doubt you've come across the two dominant illustrations used of this across all kinds of literature. One is that religion is like a mountain. They're just different paths to the same destination. One philosopher of religion, Huston Smith, put it like this. It's possible to climb life's mountain from any side, but when the top is reached, the trails converge. At the base, in the foothills of theology, ritual, organizational structure, religions are distinct. Differences in culture, history, geography, and collective temperament all make for diverse starting points. But beyond these differences, the goal is the same. So the image is essentially you can pick any side of the mountain you'd like to start on. But as long as you get to the top, all those paths have reached the same destination. The other image perhaps used more often is that of an elephant. I'm sure you came expecting to hear about elephants today. The story goes like this. It's an old uh, proverb, actually. Several blind men came across an elephant. And one approaches the elephant and reaches out and touches his belly. I don't know why anyone would want to do that, but this blind man does. He strokes the belly of the elephant and says, The elephant's like a wall. Another touches the elephant's tail and says, Well, the elephant's like a snake. Another touches the elephant's leg and says, Well, no, an elephant's like a trunk. And finally, the, the most, the least best off of the blind men, touches the elephant's hind end and says, it's like a humid cave. Now, all of these blind men, all of these blind men, the story tells us, uh, have observed, if you will, some aspect of the elephant. So they're right in some respect. They're right as they see it. But they've all missed the larger picture of what the elephant is like, of course. So the analogy is, therefore, that's the way religions are. All religions have some part of the divine right. They just don't have the whole picture. These two metaphors are used extensively to assert the position that all religions are basically the same. And they've been used a long, long, long time. If, if we were to go out to ASU tomorrow around lunchtime and conduct a survey and ask the question, what is your major hang-up with spirituality? I think the most common answer we would get is 
that they claim exclusivity. Any religion that claims to have the brand or the version of truth, I want nothing to do with. So Christians in particular are told that it's arrogant, judgmental, and narrow-minded to believe Jesus is the only path to heaven. What we're trying to do in this series is to hold up common thoughts today and then to ask, in light of what the Bible tells us, should we believe or not believe the the dominant current thought? And uh, this series has has ended up being pretty um, direct and confrontational. And the goal isn't to say there's nothing good in our culture because there's lots of good things. But the goal is to say if we take these major ideas, are they things we ought to believe? Are they truthful? And that's just what we want to do today is ask, is it true that all paths lead to heaven? Is it true that all religions are the same? One author that's written a lot on this named John Hick wrote a book called God Has Many Names. And here's something that he said. In the light of our accumulated knowledge of the other great world faiths. And then he's referencing Christian exclusivity. So the idea that Jesus is the only way. That's what he's speaking of. The idea that Jesus is the only way has become unacceptable to all except a minority of dogmatic diehards. For it is in conflict with our concept of God, which we've received from Jesus, as the loving Heavenly Father of all mankind. Could such a being have restricted the possibility of salvation to those who happen to have been born in certain countries in certain periods of history? Have you asked that question? Have you been asked that question? I would assume most of us have. So what I want to do today is simply ask, is John Hick's version of who God is, and in particular who Jesus is, correct? Or is there a different image laid out in Scripture? Because the the argument is not presented benignly. It's put forth the way John did very well, actually, to say, is the Jesus you think you've heard the right Jesus? Or is he something else altogether? Well, the Bible presents Jesus differently. The version of Jesus that John believes is not the version of Jesus that exists in the Bible. Here's some passages that would tell us otherwise. 1 John 5:11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Or, much more famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Most every football game you've ever watched has that plastered with somebody on the side, right? What they don't put is the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, that's in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Same book a little earlier, a little later, John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
Now, those were all said by Jesus, but was it only Jesus that said this? In other words, was Jesus somehow really proud and arrogant and dictatorial, and he wanted everything just to be about him because he was narcissistic? Well, Peter said this, Acts 4, verse 11, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Not just Jesus. This is a tiny sample of a huge, vast amount of biblical material that would tell us that according to Scripture, there's only one way to be right with God, and that way is through Jesus. Now, probably the most famous passage is the one I'd like us to look at together today. It'll be our main text. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, there are some in the back at the coffee bar on the left. We would invite you to get one and feel free to keep that if you don't have a Bible. We will look at John 14. Now, I'd like to use this passage at this topic because it helps us to understand a couple of things. One, the, the correct theology about who Jesus is. But even more than that, perhaps, because we've already said it in these verses, these passages, in especially these verses in John 14, help us understand the way in which we ought to understand Jesus' exclusivity. The way in which we ought to speak about this to other people. Because I'm sure you know this, but we'll just air it in the room. We'll be honest. That'd be a, a weird thing to do in church, right? It's possible to get the view of Jesus right. So Jesus is, in fact, the only way. But it's also possible, while getting that correct, to completely deny him in the way that you go about it. You see, Jesus expressed salvation being found in him as an invitation, as an opportunity to come and find love and joy and acceptance in Him. And for some reason, many of us Christians today say that truth in anything but love. We say it in anything but an invitation. We say it as a way to stiff-arm somebody who believes differently than we do. And in doing so, we deny the very one we're claiming. And so John 14 helps us to understand the way in which we should express this. Now, before we read it, I'd like to set it up for you to help us understand the context in which Jesus said it. And if you'll allow me a little bit of license here, I'd love to do it in first person. So here's what was happening through the eyes of Jesus as he was about to express these truths. He would have thought and felt something like this. Tonight is the night I'm going to be arrested. I've lived 33 years leading up to this night. I've taught, I've traveled, I've healed, I've worked miracles, I've blessed countless people. I've claimed clearly to be from God and of God. And I've tried especially to focus my time and attention on 12 people. 12 people because I chose them to be my disciples, my followers. These will be the ones that after I'm gone will carry the message on. If the world's going to come to believe in me, it's going to come to believe in me through them through their message. They will become 12 of the most influential people that have ever lived. They'll do what no one else has ever done. They will say that someone came and died and rose again. And they will invite others to find life in me. But not tonight. 
Not tonight. You see, I know what's about to happen. I'm about to be arrested and falsely accused, put through secret trials, be sentenced to death, be whipped and beaten and mocked and spit on and nailed to a cross and then die. All within the next 24 hours. The sins of the world will be placed on me. And I will die stretched out completely alone. I know this, but these 12 with me don't. I've told them over and over and over, but it hasn't clicked. You see, they have a completely different conception of what I'm here for. It hasn't clicked for them, but this is what's going to happen. So they're going to scatter, they're going to flee, they're going to run. Their whole world is about to be turned upside down by what's going to happen to me. And so I want them to have hope. I want them to know that after they've turned their backs on me, they can return. That they can come back. That's what Jesus was thinking and feeling. So now, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. So Jesus, what he's saying to them is, Look, guys, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Keep believing in God and believe in me. And here's a tiny glimpse of what's going to happen. Here's a tiny snapshot of what's being prepared for you. Look, guys, it took, it took me six days to make the world. Imagine what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to prepare a place for you that you can come and be with me. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. And one of those disciples, verse 5, says, Thomas said to him, Lord, how do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And have seen him. So this truth, I am the way, the truth, and life, the what's known as the exclusivity of Christ, that only through Christ can you be made right with God. It's clearly stated here. But so often it's stated so differently than Jesus said it. Jesus said it to comfort his followers, to invite them to continue believing in him to find strength and peace and comfort in Him. He didn't say it in punitive hate or in belittling condescension. Jesus knew that deep pain and confusion and fear lie ahead of these men. So in an effort full of love and grace, He's reassuring them that they've found life through Him. Now we can claim all religions are basically the same, but that doesn't make it so. And in fact, if you look at them objectively, you'll find that that isn't the case. When analyzed closely, we find 
different spiritual paths lead to different spiritual conclusions. To claim they all say the same thing is disingenuous. For example, Islam says Christ was a good teacher and a prophet. But Christianity says he's God who became a man. There is complete fundamental disagreement. It's dishonest to say they claim the same thing. Judaism says we're still waiting for the Messiah. Christianity says he came 2,000 years ago. Taoism says everyone must find their own path to enlightenment. Christianity says that Jesus is the only light of the world. Buddhism says that we're reincarnated into the world over and over and over. Christianity says that it's appointed that we die once and after that comes judgment. It's simply not true to push all these differences out of the way and say that spiritual paths are the same. They're not. Now, I understand it's countercultural to say that. I understand that I may, meet, may even be coming across as arrogant, judgmental, hate-filled, and harsh. But consider a few counterpoints uh, with me. Tim Keller, I think, says it best when he says this. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but just in different ways. So in other words, if your position is all of the paths are right, that is an exclusive truth claim. It is no more narrow to say, no, all the paths are not right. One is. He goes on to say it like this. Ironically, the insistence that doctrine doesn't matter is really a doctrine in itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing they forbid in others. All I'm trying to do is lay the opportunity for us to think about this differently before us. Uh, Friends, literally everywhere we go, we're told all truth is truth. Whatever you want to believe is fine, as long as you do it sincerely. And that version of truth is a claim to an exclusive view of truth. So all I'm trying to do is say, let's look at this a bit more objectively and not swallow the punch and Kool-Aid quite as quickly. And lay before us the various claims to truth and ask which one makes the most sense. In light of the knowledge we have of history, in light of the personal experience that we've had, which ones seem to be more truthful? Now, Christianity's exclusivity is an inclusive exclusivity. We've laid the truth out that Jesus says there's one way to, to God, and now I just want to spend our remaining few minutes together trying to shore up a few questions that you might have based on that. The position of the Bible is not that a few especially wealthy, educated, well-behaved people get into heaven. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Bible teaches that all of us have a fundamental problem, that we turn good things into ultimate things, that we worship what God has made instead of God himself. In the language of the Bible, that's called idolatry. 
It's called worshiping false idols. Now, that's not language we use today, but we do it all the time. Anything that we ascribe as having greater worth than God is the thing that we're worshiping. And that's an affront to the one that's created us. So Christianity says that God entered history to provide a solution to the problem that we created. That we were the ones who were offensive to Him, and yet He came in order that we could be forgiven. Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, died as our substitute, and rose again in victory over sin and death. That is what the Scriptures call the gospel, the good news. And isn't that good news? That there is a way to be right with God. That we are not hopeless. That you don't have to live the rest of your life in light of and enslaved to what you've done and what's been done to you. That there is a better way to live. That there is an offer of rightness before God. Far from being exclusive, Christianity is radically inclusive. Because it beckons all to come to Him and to find life through Him. Now this truth is a truth that humbles. If you're somebody that takes this truth, that there's one way to be right with God, and you use it as a billy club to beat other people that think differently than you, then I would ask you to never speak of it again. Because all you're doing is harming the cause of Christ. That is simply not the way Jesus said it. Jesus said it as an invitation. Jesus said it as an opportunity to come to Him and to find grace. He he communicated truth in love. And you have no right to use His words and to do it with hatred and to do it with belittling condescension. You see, it's a truth that humbles. If we really understand it, there is zero room for pride and arrogance. Let me see if I can explain that. Many today think it's arrogant to say that we know the truth. Maybe you even feel that way about it. If so, you've misunderstood how this worked. You've overestimated yourself. You see, you don't believe in God, you don't follow Christ because you're morally superior, because you're a little bit smarter, because you grew up in the right home or in the right country, because you had the right kinds of friends. You don't believe in Jesus because you're a cut above everybody else. You don't believe in Jesus because you studied all the religions and found that this one makes the most sense. The Bible says that every human being has a darkened mind, that our own decisions have caused us to be morally and spiritually blind. So if you believe in Jesus, the reason ultimately you believe in Him is because God took the initiative to make Himself known to you. God took the initiative to reveal Himself to you. If you know God, if you know the truth, it's because God started a work in you. And if you get that, then, then how is this posture ever right? If you get that I get this because God laid claim on me, then there is simply no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. Because ultimately, my understanding, my right understanding of who He is, is a result of who He is. 
not anything good in me. Christianity is not the message that we've done enough or know enough to be right with God, but that God's done enough that we can be right with Him. So there's no room for pride. But maybe the outstanding remaining question is, how do you know? If we go back to that video, how do we know it's in the church, not in the synagogue, not with the imam? How do we know? Is there a way to know? I read a helpful book this week called God is Not One. It was not written by a Christian, but by somebody who came and spoke at ASU and very clearly says all religions are not the same. Listen to the way he puts it. The world's religions, the world's religious rivals do converge when it comes to ethics, but they diverge sharply on doctrine, ritual, methodology, and experience and law. What the world's religions share is not so much a finish line as a starting point. Where they begin is with this simple observation. Something is wrong with the world. Do you believe that? Can we start there? The world is messed up. Anybody read the news this morning? 34 people in China were knifed to death. A government a big one, invaded another. A child was raped. Those are just three of the top stories. The world is really screwed up. And that includes me and you. I find it really actually encouraging and helpful that we can walk from here and see many different understandings of religion. That's not, incur- that's not discouraging to faith. It's actually helpful because I think it substantiates the Bible's claims. The Bible lays out a picture of spirituality that we are all broken people living in a broken world. And we all will gravel, will grapple, will search for something to try and make sense of a broken world. We all will lay claim to some kind of truth claims. We will all worship something. So it helps to understand and make sense of the world that the Bible says we're, we have a darkened understanding, that we search for something, but we don't search for God Himself, that we search for something to try and make sense of the brokenness all around us. So wouldn't it make sense if we're all broken and we're all looking for something to fix us, that there would be lots of different versions of that something out there? Wouldn't it make sense that different people would have different answers to the fact that we all start at the same place. So far from degrading and eroding the ground under which Christianity stands, it's helpful that there's different paths 
that lead to different places. So don't believe something simply because I'm telling you it. Don't believe something simply because some other spiritual leader of some other faith is telling you. Study. Read. Talk to people. Investigate the historical claims. And I believe if you'll do so, what you'll find is the very best understanding of what has happened historically is found in Christianity. And as we said last week, Christianity is a religion rooted in events in history. So if Jesus did not come and die and rise again, then you're wasting your time sitting here. There's a whole lot better people you could go listen to than me. But if he did, if it's true, then you've got to decide what you're going to do with that. The reality of different spiritual perspectives doesn't cause doubt about faith. It strengthens it. How do you know? Well, we can't exhaust that today. There's no way to do that. But in the next two or three minutes, let's look at what else Jesus said to his disciples. Verse 8, John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. In other words, I hear you, Jesus. I hear you saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But, but show me the Father. Give me a sign. Convince me. Overwhelm me. You ever ask God for that kind of thing? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Watch this close. But the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I can't emphasize how important this is. Jesus said to the person that asks for a sign, for an overwhelming convincing proof, Jesus said, Look at my words. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Because in my words is the very work of God. So the work of God is done through the words of Jesus. How do you know if Christianity is true? Well, study the words of Jesus. Are they truthful? Does it bear itself out in life? Can you trust what Scripture says? Did Jesus do what He claimed to do? We don't think of the Bible in that way. But what Jesus is claiming is that the way you know that He is of the Father and the Father is of Him, the way you know and experience the power of the work of God is through the words of Jesus. You see, there's tremendous power in the gospel. There's the power of changed life. The power of salvation. Friends, only in Jesus can the huge chasm between a holy God and a sinful people be crossed. Only in Jesus can our sins be forgiven and our lives be cleansed. Only in Jesus can the terrible wrath of God be satisfied. 
Only in Jesus can we draw near to the presence of God. Only in Jesus can the power over us be broken. Only in Jesus can we know where we'll spend eternity. Only in Jesus can we today, not when you die and go to heaven, today, can you be confident of who you are in Christ. Only in Jesus can we who are enemies of God be at peace with Him. What we need, friends, is a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior. Let's pray. I think it's impossible to have a message like this without giving an opportunity for you to respond. So we're going to do that in a few minutes, but for now, I didn't just invite you, whether you pray every day or you never pray, you would ask God to make known to you whether or not what we've said today is truthful or harmful. It can only be one or the other. Father, I I don't believe there is a more radical thought presented in our culture today than the truth that there is only one way to be right with God. And Father, collectively, we would confess, those of us in the room who believe that, that we have at times failed you in the way we've talked about that. We've done it with arrogance. We've done it to win arguments. We've done it to look better than somebody else. We've done it to feel superior. We've attempted to manipulate people not because we love them, but because we wanted to be right. And God, that's been arrogant and harmful and prideful. And we confess it to you as as disgusting before you. Help us, Lord, to embrace the humility that must come with this position. And to see that there is a way to be right with God. And to courageously and compellingly share it with people. Not to beat them, but to invite them to experience the love of Christ like we have. I pray as we talk for the next few minutes that you would, you would reveal yourself to us. That every person in this room could come to an understanding of who you are and what you've done in the past and what you can continue to do today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Part of the danger in what we've talked about today is that we can think of it only as what God did in the past and fail to see the way God is at work today. That the same Jesus who 2,000 years ago died and rose again is still alive and well and is still changing lives. 
We'd like to end today a little bit differently with uh, a story of how God's been at work, and then I will come pray with us. Uh, Would you welcome my mother, Marcia, as she comes to talk with us? Um, Those of you that this is your church home and you've been around a while know that uh, she is from Oklahoma City and uh, has been very, very ill and is here today to tell you about something God did in her life. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you, church, for allowing me the privilege. In the start of this year, I prayed and I made it a goal that when I was asked to share my testimony, that I would jump at that chance. And so even though I'm way out of my comfort zone in doing this this morning, I feel like it would be disobedient not to. And this is not in any way anything about me. This is only about the Lord. And what I want you to end Um, in these few minutes of me sharing is not remembering me standing here or anything I personally say, but that you would ask the Lord what he wants you to get out of my testimony. In um, December of 2010, I got very sick. And I've been a healthy person 99% of my life, but I knew I wasn't feeling good, but I came to Arizona to help my parents and my father was sick. And I got sicker and sicker each day I was here. And that began a cycle of two and a half years of just absolute um, misery in my physical health. Um, I ended up in the hospital here and it began a series of my family having to drop everything that they did to come and rescue me. And Chuck was the first one to see me at the hospital that day. And they admitted me and didn't know what was wrong with me, but they knew that something was wrong but they kept me for a couple days and discharged me. And I've been in hospitals in Hawaii, in Jerusalem, in Oklahoma City, in Phoenix. It seems like I would be well enough to do something and then get very sick again. And I had pain that wasn't explained and various people tried various things. I had surgery, I spent weeks literally in the hospital. I'd get well and feel a little better, and then I'd get really sick and lose weight and stop eating and get sicker and sicker. I had lots of doctors try to help me, and they would give me medicine, and I would start to get better. I had my church praying, and I know some of you were praying for me. My family was desperate for something to be done because the person that they knew was disappearing before their eyes. The things that I love to do, I still love to do, but I couldn't do them. I couldn't come watch Abby and Micah and and be a part of their lives because I couldn't leave home. And I love my church, but um, I could barely get dressed and go to church, let alone serve like I wanted to serve. And so two and a half years, I could just describe I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And I came to a point in what I believed was that God wanted me to demonstrate to people how to suffer well and that I needed to uh, be strong in him and that I needed to keep my faith in him and that God was good all the time and that he didn't have to heal me in order for me to to declare his goodness and for my faith to be strong. I never feared dying because I knew where I was going and I knew that the Lord loved me and I would be going to heaven. I didn't want to leave my family because I didn't want to leave them here without me, which is somewhat selfish. But thus began this cycle over and over again. My family and my church family were not content with me being sick. And uh, Chuck and my other sons 
persevered through it all, trying to help me, taking off work. My husband canceled trips, he canceled appointments, he stayed with me when I just couldn't think straight. My friends would stay with me at home when I couldn't be alone, and I just got worse and worse. And last spring, my doctor said, you know what, we've done everything I know to do in Oklahoma City. The only thing I know to do is to send you to Mayo in Rochester, Minnesota. And I'm a very conservative person with money, so I really rebelled with that because I didn't really believe that it was wise to spend that much money. It wasn't covered by our insurance and traveling all that way, so I fought it. But I kept getting sicker and sicker, and my family and my church family pretty much just insisted that we go. So we were admitted to Mayo in June of last year. And at that time, I weighed 94 pounds, um, my blood pressure was 60 over 40, and I was very near death. I had gathered all of my charts from all of the doctors and all of the hospitals, and it was like a stack this thick of everything that had been done to me and for me in Oklahoma City and in the hospitals here in Arizona and the other places I'd been. So I had gathered all these charts and I was admitted to Mayo and they did a preliminary examination on me and I don't know if anybody's been there, but they amazingly hand you this little paper when you leave and there's a whole, like I had eight days worth of tests that were scheduled that very day, which is just amazing when I know for you and I on a day-to-day -day basis we have to wait weeks to get into specialists. But that night when we went back to our hotel room, I said to Dennis, I'm really scared and I know this sounds crazy, but my stomach doesn't hurt anymore. And he said, what? And he really, he thought I was like, because I have had moments of craziness in the last two and a half years also, not just physically but mentally. And um, he said, what do you mean? And I said, I can't explain it, but it doesn't hurt. And I'm a nurse. I've had patients before that were really scared of things, and they'd say it doesn't hurt anymore because they were too scared of what was going to happen to them when they said that they were sick. And so at first I thought it was that. And we went to bed that first night and began testing the next day, and the first words out of Dennis's mouth were, does your stomach hurt? Are, are, how do you feel? And I said, it doesn't hurt. And so we spent the next eight days having all the tests done at Mayo that were ordered for somebody that looked like me when I arrived. And every day I would say, it doesn't hurt anymore. It's gone. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But it's gone. And they had not done anything for me other than to test me. And so I had multiple biopsies and lab work and EGDs and I had so much done and it never would have been done anywhere else to somebody who felt good if I hadn't been there. And at the end, the very last day I was there, I was seen by a specialist in gastritis and he looked at my tests that were done there and he looked at my chart and he said, I don't understand this, I can't explain it to you, but this test on um, you here is totally free and clear. And this test here looks like it belongs to somebody else. There was no scar tissue from what had happened in the last two and a half years, 
and everything from his perspective was perfectly healthy. Dennis and I knew what had happened. That doctor didn't know what had happened. But when we walked out that day, I just cried and cried because I know I didn't understand why God chose to heal me, but I knew he had. They gave me no medicine. They did nothing that would have healed me other than I was there. And the only explanation I can have for why God chose to heal me in Rochester rather than Oklahoma City was I could stand in front of my church when I got home. And I could stand in front of anybody with documentation of the two sides. I never would have gathered my chart if I had gotten well at home. I never would have had the tests repeated at home to prove that I had been healed. So God so purposely orchestrated my healing that I would be in the only place that I know of that would do tests on a person who says they feel better. And so I would say to you today, God is alive. God is well. God is at work. If there's something going on in your life or in your loved one's life that you feel like giving up on, don't give up. Because I don't necessarily understand his timing of why for two and a half years I would go through what I went through, but yet I'm so grateful for it. And all of God's word is true. He is good all the time. He was good when I was sick, and he is good now that I'm well. But I want to give him all the glory and all the praise and to just encourage you in your faith that you would not look at me like some like freak that it just happened to somebody else or thousands of years ago, but that today, in 2014, God can heal. We all pray for others, but yet when he heals, we act surprised. But yet, on the same hand, what are we praying for if our faith is not strong enough to believe that he can heal? So whether it be physical or emotional, whether it be financial, whether it be relational, with a relationship, don't give up. God doesn't give up. And I just want you to leave today with believing and having your faith strengthened because of what he has done through me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he continues uh, to reveal himself through the gospel and through very unusual stories of ways that he chooses to work. Uh, I wanted you to hear her story to thank you for praying for her. Uh, many of you have repeatedly asked. Um, I believe if God had not intervened this way that she would be dead now. And God would still be worthy of following if that were true. So I'd like to send you out with uh, these words and then to offer a, a unique invitation to end today. That if, if you're here and you've never placed your trust in Christ, that, that you'd stick around and you'd come and visit with one of us here at the front Allow us the tremendous blessing of praying with you. And if you would like prayer, that God would intervene in some relational issue or financial matter or even a physical issue, that you would stick around and you'd give us the blessing of praying with you and asking God to make himself known.
he may choose to do that. He may choose to intervene in a really miraculous way. He may not. Either way, he's still God. He's still the way, the truth, and life. But we want to be people of faith who ask. And the prayer that we know he'll answer every time is when a person comes to God and says, I am broken. I have failed you. I've put my trust elsewhere, and I'm in need of a Savior. Would you save me? The answer to that is always yes. So I'd ask right now as I read the scripture if some of the staff and leadership team would come here to the front. I'd like to send you out with these words. This is from Hebrews 11. What more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel or the prophets. So all these famous people of the Old Testament through whom God did miraculous things. Who by faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. Who quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead. They were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they, were, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goats, destitutes, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on the mountains, hiding in caves and holes and in grounds. The path of those that follow God is not going to look the same. It never has. Some experience miraculous healings, others die praying for it. Some experience the reversal of a dying marriage, others don't. Some get that check in the mail that keeps you in your place, others it never shows up. But there is a sovereign God who always does what's right for his people. There is a way, a truth in the life. And it's always right to follow Him. As you go, our invitation to you is if you'd like prayer, we'd love the opportunity to pray with you. May you go in the name of Christ.